I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. My friend Ross Martin is on the show today. He has one of the most creative and strategic minds out there. He spent 13 years as a top executive at Viacom and recently started his own agency called Blackbird. Ross has guided countless household name brands, helping them innovate and create impact. I never know what guests are going to say when I ask them to share their why not now moment. In this episode, Ross exercises a why not now moment on the show and shares a few really tough experiences that he hasn't talked about before publicly. This led us to a conversation around operating systems versus belief systems. I took so much away from this conversation, and I think you will too. Before we get started, let me fill you in on something that's been a lifesaver. It's called Design Pickle. Get it? You're in a pickle because you need a design, ASAP, but you don't have the time or maybe even the skill to do it yourself. With Design Pickle, you pay a flat rate monthly fee of $370 and you're given a dedicated designer for all of your needs. And the first 14 days are risk-free. You get a full refund if you cancel in the first two weeks. For me, the process has been painless and ego-free. In fact, the Why Not Now posts you're seeing on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and everywhere else were created from my buddies at Design Pickle. I found I was spending so much time resizing images and trying to design things on my own. I didn't have the budget to hire a design firm or an agency, yet it was becoming too expensive for me to budget my own time. I'm now on a first name basis with my designer. She's learned my style and we're in a groove. Why not now listeners get 30% off their first month? You can go to designpickle.com forward slash why not now to redeem the offer. It's a great solution for entrepreneurs. A mentor once said to me, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Do what you're uniquely qualified to do. Design Pickle helps me do just that. Ross, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Thanks, Amy Joe. I'm doing great. I'm psyched to be here. I'm excited to have you on. And and actually, I need to thank you because, gosh, it was over a year ago, year and a half maybe, I was in your office in New York City and I was running this concept by you. I have so much respect for your creativity and just innovative spirit that um, you encouraged me. And so I think that really helped push this over the line, this podcast. So thank you. I'll, I'll, take, your, I'll take your thank you, but I got to return it because what you have been doing with empathy um, has been super meaningful to me and, um, I've been using it in my client work and, um, I've been really inspired by the idea that, you know, when you have some time, you can offer it to the community and find a way to provide value for others. And and I think that comes from your sense of empathy and I, and I, I love that. So I've been, I've been practicing what you've been preaching. Well, thank you. I'm humbled. Let's hop right in, uh, in that spirit. And, Talk through a why not now moment. Can you think of a time when you had to ask yourself the question, why not now? And we'll dissect it. Yeah. You know, um, I, I went through as many people do a, um, a medical sort of trauma that I think I've never really talked about. 
um, publicly. And I kind of tried to hide it from everybody around me because I just didn't know what was going to happen to me. And, um, I felt like my whole world was falling apart. It really was. Um, I was the 165th person in America to be diagnosed with something called semicircular canal dehiscence. And what that means is that I had, I didn't know what it was, but I had holes in my inner ear in the lining between your inner ear and your brain. And that's like the, the, the wall that sort of keeps the, the distracting or overwhelming stuff away from your brain. And so sounds were coming into my ear that my brain didn't know how to process and that were reaching my brain directly. And so like that's complicated science stuff, but really like on the human level every day, what it meant was that I was, I was getting dizzy for apparently no reason at all. And um, my dizziness led to vertigo and it led to um, me passing out pr pretty much every day uh, from everyday noises like wow. a bus driving by or someone honking their horn or my phone ringing and I would just pass out. And, uh, I, I tried to hide it from people. I didn't know what was wrong with me for a year. I went to many doctors and I was diagnosed with lots of different things that really weren't right. Like anxiety or some sleep disorder or whatever it was. But it turned out I had this really rare condition and by luck found my way to the doctor who um, invented the diagnosis at Johns Hopkins. And so I bring it up to say that I kind of went through this period for a year and a half, almost two years of my life where um, until I had surgery to repair that, I was going fucking crazy. And what I mean by that is there's a condition called autophony where the sound of your own voice is too loud in your own brain. That means that you just stop talking. Because the more I talked, the more I would pass out from my own voice. And I don't know about you, but you know, you have got a very successful podcast, um, and I'm I'm asked to speak a lot of a lot in a lot of places every week. I like the sound of my own voice, but <laughs> but uh, but for like almost two years, I couldn't really talk because um, it was too much for me to handle my own voice. Yeah, I had no idea. So this is all news to me. I'm processing as you're you're telling me. Like, I hid that from everybody at work. Um, I tried to find ways that nobody would find out that I could still keep my job. I, you know, but inside I was going crazy, and to the point where you kind of end up with when you have this condition. And like I said, only 164 people before me had been diagnosed. You, you know, you end up like isolating yourself in your room, pretty much in your bed, with no sound and. I would just sit there reading a book. And as I was reading a book one time, um, I kept hearing what I thought was a mouse in the room. But it wasn't a mouse at all. It was just the sound of my own eyes moving from word to word in the book. You begin to hear the inside of your body um, process, processes that you shouldn't hear, like your own digestion or your heartbeat or your eyes moving, things you should just not hear. I, I was hearing them. Yeah, like I said, I've never really talked about this before, but I feel like, you know, with your show, it's like I listen to others before me, you know, Billy Corgan in particular, and I think there's a there's a radical honesty and intimacy that you provide, and I, and I think that's why I'm a fan of the show. So I feel like for me to come on and not really talk about that would be disingenuous. Oh, well, thank you for sharing this, and it's... I can't imagine how lonely and isolating that must have felt, but also you're a very intelligent, motivated person. And and the misdiagnosis along the way, I imagine, was frustrating for people saying, oh, this is anxiety or this is something that you, you know, just try meditation or try this exercise and you'll, you'll get over it. Or I can't imagine what the suggestions were, but, um, it, yeah, this is, it, it's interesting. So you, you kept it from, you kept from sharing. Why specifically? I, I was panicking. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not somebody who ever complains about things. I don't, I can't deal with that. And I didn't want people feeling sorry for me. Um, my career was on fire at the time. I just felt like 
I was invincible before that. Um, I was running creative for MTV's college channel, which is called MTVU. We had just won two Emmy Awards and a Peabody. Um, we had doubled revenue three years in a row. We were being written about all over the place, the New York Times. Um, we were having a big impact. And um, like I said, I just felt invincible. And I felt like if anyone knew what I was really dealing with, then that would go away and I, I maybe wouldn't have a chance again. So I just kind of, and also I just felt like, what do you tell people? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm dizzy all the time and I feel like I'm going to pass out. Don't, I can't talk to you. I mean, it was just, I don't know. I it just felt like, um, I had no idea what to do. The only time I really spoke was when I was at work and I would do it in very hushed tones and my assistant at the time would cover for me. When I was diagnosed, um, Amy Joe, 33% of the people who have what I had get it in both ears. And the thing is, only 65 people before me had been operated on. It was a very risky new procedure to solve this. Mm-hmm. And I decided I wanted to do it. I wanted to, once I found out what I had, I needed to go do something about it. And um, I knew there was a risk that I could end up losing my hearing completely. Um, or not being able to regain my balance. But the doctors at John Ho- Johns Hopkins, Lloyd Minor, who's now the dean of the Stanford Medical School, said to me they would only operate on one side, the left or the right, and you can't do both because otherwise you'll never regain your balance and your vestibular system will be off forever. And um, that made me choose, right? I have to choose between left and right ear, which meant deciding which one, figuring out which one was worse. And so for about six months, I would sneak down to Johns Hopkins. I would like duck out of work for a day, take Amtrak down to Baltimore and undergo tests in this lab. And these tests were so new and experimental that I was being paid by the U.S. government to have these tests done to me. Um, So they would hook up copper wires to my eyes and then blast music on one ear to see how my eyes reacted versus the other ear or flush uh, one ear with warm water and have me start to say the alphabet backwards, which I can't even do when I'm sober. (laughs) Um, Just lots of really weird tests like that to see which side of my brain was, you know, ear was, and they they picked the right side. So um, we we went for surgery and I said goodbye to my my parents, my, uh, my wife who was pregnant at the time and my son. And went for this six-hour surgery. It was a craniotomy. They lifted up my brain and they plugged the holes. And um, after that, I had to relearn how to walk and get my balance back. Wow, this is yeah. just this so, is incredible. Well, and it's, it seems like your why not now moment is kind of happening right now and sharing this publicly for the <laughs> first time. Is that accurate it is accurate it's not easy to talk about that stuff um sure you know it feels like a risk but um at the same time i'm I'm like so grateful to the doctors and to the family and friends that helped me get through this you know when i came back when i started to recover from the surgery we lost a child our child at birth. So you're getting all the bad stuff from Ross Martin today, but we lost our child at birth, which were not, um, which was not a secret, you know, but he, we, we lost him at birth. And, um, and so I had to sort of, uh, deal, you know, I don't know, like I had a lot going on. Yeah. And, um, the question was, you know, you've just had this major medical thing happen for a couple of years. You've come out of the surgery, you've lost a child at birth. And now, now what are you supposed to do? And, so I guess like the, the why not now moment really happened then, which was like, well, what do you do with your life after these things have happened? And, you know, do you just run away and like move to Maine, which eventually is where I want to be anyway, retire and just give up? Like, do you just drop out of your everyday life and just hide or do you find a way to get back in, but knowing that you're a changed person and nothing's ever the same? And for me, I, I chose to dive back in, um, but I was certainly a very different person. 
How did you get through those moments when you just didn't want to dive back in? So those, those moments when you wake up or days and it's like, wow, what more can I, can I take on after the, the couple of years that you had? The way that's when I really started to um, think about the difference between an operating system and a belief system. It's when I started to think about the fact that like as a husband, as a son, as a dad, and as a media executive, I have all of these modes of operating and it's, it's different for each one. Right. And I, i you know, sometimes I'm better at one than the other and it depends on the day. But if you don't have a belief system behind all that, then you really have no support. You have no way of, of like sort of finding strength in difficult moments and um, seeing your own like true north. And, you know, when I was tested, like everyone is in their lives, I, I found out really quickly that I had never done any work on my own belief system. And um, I, I had no way of really understanding just for myself, like who the fuck I am and who I want to be. Like I just didn't, I never even tried to work on that, which is, it just sounds so silly, right? Like how could you not know? How could you be, you know, in your, at the time in the late, in my late thirties and, and not know who, who you are or how to say that to yourself in a moment of crisis. But I didn't. And so to answer your question, like the way I kind of got back up is by trying to figure out like what my belief system is and um, my purpose and my identity. And the irony of this is that as a marketer, that's something I do all the time for brands and businesses and for other leaders. I just had never done it for myself. I don't know. I don't know if you've done that or like, I think you have, I just hadn't before. Wow. That's, yeah, that's pretty, pretty epic. And that, and the way you put that, the operating system versus the belief system. And I really I actually got, think it's common. Uh, didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I, especially for, I mean, look at the pace of your life up until that point and the success and the hustle and the drive and the motivation. And it worked really well until you hit a really big challenge, a couple of challenges. Yeah, the um, irony of it all to me is like back to that, the idea of the sound of your own voice. And I was talking so much, right? All I was doing was putting stuff out into the world. It was my ideas. I wasn't listening to other people very much. Um, and I kind of got caught up in this, you know, game that we all kind of get caught up in, I think, which is, you know, achievement and recognition, having other people tell me that I was smart and successful, like that became really important, um, especially early in my career. And I just, I really wasn't, I wasn't doing much listening. I was just doing a lot of talking. That really changed when the sound of my own voice became too much for me to bear. And I'll tell you on the, on the belief system, that word really came to me from um, a, a very good friend and a marketer who I think is one of the best, which is Seth Farbman, who was the chief marketing officer of Spotify. And at the time, he was the chief marketing officer of The Gap. And Seth and I had this conversation where he sort of, he gave me that language. He said, you know, you have all these operating systems, but you really don't have a belief system. And it's just it's kind of funny to think about it because I was raised in such an amazing family. I, I'm very close with my mom and my dad and my sister. And when I started to dive into like, what the hell is my belief system? Um, the two things that emerged loudest to me, uh, were the belief system of my mom and the belief system of my dad. And I, I, I hadn't even thought about how clear those things were to me, but my mom's especially, I woke up every morning of my childhood with my mom saying the same exact three words to me every morning. Today's the day. Mm -hmm. Every single morning. And I think <laughs> to some people that might seem like, whoa, that's a little much for like 7 a.m., right? But 
it's just what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a mom who said today's the day every day. And um, I kind of took it for granted, except when I needed to, you know, reach back into my childhood and grab it and make it a key part of my belief system. So that was one. And the other, I didn't quite have language for until about eight months ago uh, when I lost my dad. And um, when my dad, who I was very close with, was diagnosed with cancer, we spent a lot of time together. Um, And I I basically moved in with him for the last three or four weeks of his life with my mom. And um, I talked to him about his belief system a lot. And I asked him to explain why he did things the way he did his whole life. And I recorded all of it. And it was really meaningful because I and he knew, you know, I was like fishing for something. I was trying to find like the right language from my dad that I could just that would make it feel all complete. And I could never really tie it up as a storyteller. I was I had all these loose ends from my dad's stories, but I had no unifying principle or way to express it. Um, except for his last words to me, which um, were exactly that. And he called me over uh, and he told me I, he was kind of having this lucid dream um, at the very end of his life. And he said, Ross, I have to uh, give a meaningful report. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, I have to give a meaningful report to the CEO. And I'm like, I, I think he was just dreaming. I don't know if he was even talking to me. And I said, okay, where's the report, Dad? And he didn't answer, and he kind of fell back asleep. And I said, well, Dad, what's the report about? And he said, it's about the treatment of people. And I, I was like, whoa. And I couldn't get, get him to say anything else for a couple of minutes. He just kind of faded out again. And I said, Dad, what's the most important part? And he said, be there. And, and, and then he died. Wow. And, um, and that's when I had the language to understand my dad's belief system. And he gave that to me as his, in his last breath. So I have been able to take today's the day and be there and use those as, you know, the building blocks of my identity and my purpose and my mission in, in my life. Um, and now, and now I have that. Wow. This is so powerful. And I'm just thinking through, you know, for people who are listening and, and wondering, well, what's my belief system? What a good place to start, like you did with your mom and dad. You know, what a, what a really solid place. And it doesn't mean you have to adopt it and embrace it 100%. Maybe you want to, but at least it's a place to, to start or someone that you really love and, and respect. And wow, that's, that's just, um, it's definitely powerful. And as, as a storyteller too, it's interesting how you kind of lost your voice and found it again. And, um, I'm so curious of how that's impacted the work that you do. And, um, you know, you work with some of the most powerful, influential, biggest brands in the world. And, in a way, it's a way for you to scale your belief system, you know, and make a huge impact. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. I, I love it. I love that, that you said that. You know, it's really simple when you think about it. Like, we all must have a belief system somewhere in there. And, and yet we, we, we do such little work on that because there's no time. Um, we're all really busy. The world's very loud kind of hard to be a human being in 2017, especially with um, all the chaos and confusion around us. You know, one of the ways that I get through that stuff today is I, I had a professor in college who was my poetry professor. And um, she's had a pretty big influence on my, on my life and my career. Her name's Olga Brumis. And Olga, um, Greek, um, sapphic poet, um, incredible, incredible writer and thinker. And she taught me, she said that you must write for 30 minutes a day. 
every day. You must write for 30 minutes a day, every day, except if you're really busy. And then you must write for an hour <laughs> every day. And um, I do that. It's not always writing, but it's thinking. Um, and it's time that I put in my calendar for myself every day. And it's a way to sort of hear my own voice without having to talk um, and to remember, you know, who I am and where I come from and what's important to me because it's easy to really get for that stuff to get lost, especially in what I do, you know. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Ross. We tackle the most taboo topics on the Why Not Now show. Oftentimes, you're hearing guests share things they've never shared before. In the spirit of things we don't typically talk about, you should know that the Why Not Now show is supported by Poopery. Yep, the original before-you-go toilet spray. It's magic. My friends at Poopery have literally taken the smell out of you-know-what. This pure blend of essential oils stops bathroom odor before it begins. Visit Poopery.com. And Why Not Now listeners get 20% off with code why not now? That's all one word. I've been thinking a lot about spiritual wealth lately and, and the comparison to, you know, just financial wealth. And we, we invest so much in our lives and, and so much time into our well-being in terms of financial stability and security. But we don't, we just don't do a lot of that when it comes to the belief system or the wealth of our, of ourselves. So it's, it's important. I love that. Um, if you're busy, you need an hour. If you're not busy, (laughs) you can do a half hour. Uh, it's a, it's a good reminder to check yourself totally. So I'm really curious, Ross. So you, you have been through a pretty big transition recently as it relates to the, the career or just your, what you do, um, for a living. And, I'm curious to hear more about this and how it all happened. So you were a very senior executive at Viacom and you decided to do your own thing recently. Can you tell me a little bit about this? Yeah, sure. Um, I spent 13 years at Viacom. Uh, I never, I never thought I'd be anywhere for even three years. And I always looked at people who stayed at companies for like 10 years and kind of laughed that, wow, they must just sit there and play a lot of defense to keep those jobs. And they must have no, you know, ambition or tolerance for risk. And I was so quick to dismiss them. Um, But, you know, along my path, um, I met um, a very close friend, Amy Friedman. And Amy now runs development and production for Sprout, which is the TV network that's becoming Universal Kids. And she, she's one of the great creators in um, television for children. And um, she said to me, she said, you know, our careers are not very linear. I mean, we can try to force them into some linear progression. But the truth is, we do bodies of work. And, um, and I learned that from her. And I think she's completely right, at least in my case, she is. And you don't always know when you're at the beginning or the middle of a body of work. You don't, you know, you don't only do one body of work at a time. Sometimes they overlap. But when you look back, like on the career that I've had so far, I mean, I can, I can now point to eight or nine different bodies of work. And it's a way of me sort of organizing like the taxonomy of my career in a way that like I can make sense of it. Um, and it, it's funny cause it doesn't all fit. Like when you, I know so many people who just can't figure out how to do their resume or like their LinkedIn proposal looks like a, their LinkedIn uh, profile looks like a bunch of zigzags mm-hmm. because we live in a world where like, you don't have to be one thing anymore. I would, um, I would doubt that most of us are going to have one job five years from now. I think what we're doing, what you do, what I do is we're managing portfolio careers and um, whether that's because of what technology's made it possible or easier for us to do, or the way our whole economy is is shifting to 
you know, sharing and the gig economy, you know, you can blame it on um, any root cause. But the fact is, I've never thought of having one job. At Viacom, uh, you know, in the course of my career there for 13 years, I never had a job that somebody had before me. <laughs> Not once. Like the jobs I had at Viacom, and I had three big ones. Nobody had those jobs before. We had to write the job descriptions. So there were no metrics for success. There was no playbook that I would inherit. I was simply creating opportunities inside a company that believed in me and was giving me a chance. And so that always meant for me that I had to do two things. I had to kind of like run the department of tomorrow and I had to put points on the board today. And I loved that challenge. It wasn't easy. Um, it wasn't safe. And it certainly wasn't always pleasant. But the rewards were just mind-blowing to me and the things I got to do there. So I feel really lucky that 13 years at that company, you know, were just filled with opportunities that I created and other people created. And then I learned so much along the way. I think I'm most proud of the, the cultures that we were able to create and the, um, the talent we were able to grow. And that, that company is, Viacom is a place that bets on people and ideas and that's what I'm all about. But when it was time to go, I knew it was time to go. I felt like my body of work there was wrapping up. I had achieved what I set out to achieve. I felt that we were you know, leaving the company in great hands with Bob Backish, the new CEO. And it was one of those inflection points in the life cycle of the company where it seemed like, you know, it wouldn't be without pain and emotion, you know, the, 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 the sadness of leaving something behind that you care about so much. Um, but I wasn't so much leaving as I was going to my next thing. And um, I, I wasn't like running away from something that was incomplete. I felt like I was doing exactly the right thing I was supposed to do. And I think when that kind of clicks in your mind and in your heart, then, you know, it would take a lot of energy to hold back and not do it. Um, so when everything became really obvious to me that this was my time to step out, to take a big risk, I went for it. And the conditions were there to make it really clear that this was the time, right? The conditions in my life, as I said earlier, losing my father. Um, I also lost my mentor who left the company, uh, was our chief operating officer. And then um, two investors stepped up. And sometimes I think it takes people on the outside who believe in you to remind you of what you're capable of. And I'm certainly vulnerable to that. Um, Two investors stepped up and got together and said, Ross, what the fuck are you waiting for? Like, what are you waiting for? It's your time. Let's do this. And um, they were right. And uh, I had no more excuses. Uh, so I went for it. And I started this company with their investment called Blackbird. And Blackbird is a marketing and business innovation firm. It's an extension of what I've been doing my whole career. And I'm having the time of my life. It seems like this was a brewing idea for you. And it, it wasn't that you were running from something, like you said. I, I really like that. You know, you weren't running away from something. You were you were moving towards something that you knew was the right time. But the the investors are really what seemed to have tipped you over into action mode. Was it that moment that really kind of greenlit the idea for you? Yeah. I, I don't know what this is inside of us. I think that, um, you know, it's, there's, there's just a feeling in your gut when you know. I mean, I applied to one college. That's it. <laughs> and I went. I knew I was marrying the right person. And I, I went for it. Like, I... I think those big decisions in your life, when it's clear, our job is really sometimes, it goes back to what we talked about before, about just being quiet enough to listen and hear. And um, I'm at a point in my life where I trust my hearing, my, I trust my ears more than I trust my mouth, to be honest with you. And I can, I can hear. Um, and I can see. And it was very clear to me that this was, this was a time for me to go for it. And 
what, what, okay, so what if I fail, right? What if this business that I'm running is not successful by my measure or by other people's? Um, I, I think about that. Um, in fact, I was writing a piece for LinkedIn that I haven't published yet, but in response to that word fearlessness, um, there's a magazine cover last month with Elon Musk on the cover and it says fearless. And I don't believe in that. I'm, I'm afraid every day. There's a lot that I'm afraid of. I have fear and anxiety. And I think those people who say they don't are full of shit. Not only do I have it, but I'm grateful for it because it protects me. It makes me more aware and it's a check and balance against my own cavalier spirit. So when you're afraid of something, when you sense fear, you have a bunch of choices. And um, I like to go right at it. I'm afraid of three things in my life. I'm afraid of prison. I don't want to go to prison. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I'm afraid of squirrels attacking me. And um, my wife is amazing at calling squirrels in the park and they come running over to us just to fuck with me. <laughs> um, and I'm afraid of birds flying into me. I know that sounds weird, but I'm afraid of birds flying into me. And it's happened. Um, it happened on Canal Street years ago. I was crossing the street and a blackbird flew into my chest and had some sort of spaz attack in my neck. And I, I just completely lost it in, in the full of traffic. Like people are probably laughing their asses off watching me freak out in the middle of the street. But this bird flew into me. And it's one of the reasons why I called, yeah, it's one of the reasons why I called this company Blackbird. And again, I haven't told anyone this ever, but I'm not waiting for the next bird to fly into me. I'm going to fly into the bird. <laughs> there you go. I'm calling it Blackbird because I'm going right at it. That's awesome. I love that. I knew there was a story. I was hoping you'd, you'd get to it. Uh, very interesting. And the fact that you say you trust your ears more than you trust your mouth, that's just so powerful, especially for what you've been through health-wise. Um, imagine the gift that that may have, have given you. Uh, so there's a, I have a question for you, and, and I've been thinking about this for quite some time, and you're, you're the, the voice of authority, in my opinion, when it comes to marketing. And, and so can brands use empathy and altruism as a strategy? as an actual strategy, not as a corporate responsibility or foundation side messaging, but as a true strategy? I think it's a great question. Um, I've seen many brands try and um, fail or fall short. I learned a lot from working on the Pepsi Refresh project um, years ago when really it was empathy that led the marketing strategy for Pepsi, brand Pepsi. And Pepsi did amazing things in the world because of it. It, it was not just marketing. It was you know, action. And they were improving the lives of people in communities all over the world. But also they sell sugar in a can. Mm -hmm. And um, it's an enormous global corporation that takes heat on a number of issues all the time. And so it was a challenge for them. I, I'm so proud of that effort. Um, and I, again, I learned a lot from the experience and I learned how hard it is for empathy to be your strategy. If empathy is your strategy, it can't just be marketing, right? Marketing can only do so much. If you don't live your brand mm -hmm. and live your values as a corporation, not only do your employees see through it or can't hide it, but your consumers spot it immediately. And so I think empathy is difficult as a strategy in and of itself. But what I think is safe to say today is that empathy is table stakes. Empathy is an expectation that we have of one another and of the brands that expect to get our business. And that those that don't show it um, really don't have a chance to survive. So 
I think that's a good thing. Um, I don't work with leaders who don't have empathy. Um, I just won't because to understand central human truth, which is what you need to be a successful marketer or leader in business, you cannot do that without empathy. And, and I try to, I, I mean, I try to live that myself. We don't, you know, of course we all fall short, but I love, I love the question. And I think you're completely right for marketers and business leaders in almost every industry I can think of. Empathy must be in your DNA. It's, it's what I really loved about working with Comedy Central and Nickelodeon and MTV. It was part of the DNA. Mm-hmm. If something happened in the world, those brands felt it was their responsibility to do something about it, almost like something they owed to their fans um, each and every time. And I think that's critical. It's, it's interesting. You're, you're so right in that um, it's an inside job. And, yeah. and if it is, if it truly is there on the inside and in the culture and especially at the leadership level, but all the way down because they set the tone, um, then, then it will be exposed forward facing outward. to. And also, outward. also when you think about like creativity and innovation in a culture, and I don't mean like disruptive innovation, I mean, sustained creativity and innovation in a culture, it's not possible without empathy. Every creative leader that I've ever worked with over-indexes on the empathy scale. And you know what's funny about that is that it, it means that you have feelings, which when you're in a leadership position, sometimes you're not really allowed to have or expected to share. I wrote a piece for Thrive. I know you had Ariana on the show. And she asked me to help define or how I would define masculinity in the 21st century. And I talked about how um, disturbing it's been to me that, you know, at certain points in my career, I've been described by, um, by people, someone who has feelings, right? like sensitive. Well, you're damn right. I do. Like it's why I'm good at what I do because I feel things. And, Empathy is one of them. And without that, I think creativity and innovation don't stand a chance. That's very interesting. Oh, what a topic, too. The masculinity and everything that's going on. It's not just Silicon Valley, but they've definitely gotten the spotlight with the bro culture. And I know Ariana's definitely plays a a role in that in in hopefully helping shift that. Um, Wow. Well, thank you for answering that. It's um, something that's definitely been on my mind a lot lately. And um, so a couple of rapid fire questions for us to wrap us up. Number one, what are you reading right now? I am rereading Wallace Stevens. Yeah, I saw that on your uh, LinkedIn that you have a master's in poetry, right? I do. I have a master's in poetry. (laughs) I didn't know that. That's so awesome. of poems in 2001 called The Cop Who Rides Alone. And I'm two thirds of the way done with my second book and I hope I finish it one day. You will. Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. Awesome. What keeps you up at night? I miss my son. He just went to, um, my older son just went to boarding school in California. And what keeps me up at night is wondering what he's thinking and how week one is going. Um, And I miss him. Oh, I love that. In fact, I think I saw something on Instagram where you you posted and said, we're under the same sky tonight or something I like did. that. Oh, you're awesome. And um, pirates or ninjas? Who's tougher? Pirates or ninjas? Yeah. Ninjas by far. <laughs> Who would ever say pirates? <laughs> Does this have to do with your Nickelodeon days or anything like that? <laughs> Look, I love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but I would answer that question ninja 10 times out of 10 because – First of all, pirates only have one eye most of the time, so they can't even see on the other side. And second of all, like ninjas can basically fly, and they can do anything. But I like, love the passion this question brings. Oh my god, the pirates suck, ninjas! <laughs> wow, whoa, buddy! I don't know that we, we need to go that far. Okay, you're uh, right. <laughs> I mean, they're at a disadvantage with the eye and the leg, right? Um, 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Advice to your younger self. What would it be? And you can decide what age that would be. Trust your gut. You know, I think I just, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, it's so simple. It's like you, when you know, you know, right. When my work, when my wife met me the first time she met me, she said, I'm in love with you. And I said, you're crazy. You have never, you don't even know me, but she knew, I don't know how she knew. She knows everything. But she, <laughs> I love it. I've learned, I've learned from my wife that when you know, you know, and, and I wish I could have always known that. Wow. That's awesome. I, I, uh, I think that ties back to the belief system too. The stronger your belief system is that when you know, you know, it, it gets louder and louder, more efficient oh. and effective. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you, Ross. This has been fun, and and let's do it again sometime. This, it's always fun to follow your journey, and right now you've got a lot of cool things cooking. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. I love, love, love your podcast, and I can't wait for more of it. My conversation with Ross around operating systems and belief systems really got me thinking. I asked my friend Susie Batiste, former Why Not Now podcast guest and founder of Poopery, to join me and discuss that very topic. Susie has one of the most colorful journeys I've come across, from experiencing bankruptcies and marital abuse to growing a business empire that's now valued at more than $300 million. I've learned a great deal from my friend Susie, so I wanted to share her brilliance. She'll be on the show from time to time. Hey, Susie, how you doing? Hey, Ajo. How are you? I'm good. This is fun. I'm excited to have you on and and just chat. Yeah, me too. It's a beautiful day here in Dallas, which I'm excited about. I want to chat a little bit about this concept of operating systems and belief systems. And let me just ask you, do you have a belief system? Mm, it's a really juicy question. Do I have a belief system? I do believe that I have a belief system. And I'd love to tell you about something that happened a few years ago, if you're open to that. Yes, please. Um, Yeah, so I was, uh, as you know, I had a a life of struggle, you know, really a lot of uh, kind of a hard life, you know, a couple bankruptcies, abusive marriages, all of that. And I went to this um, uh, hypnotist and I wanted, you know, just fix my brain and make my life wonderful. And he said, and I, cause I was, had been quite depressed and just, I just didn't have any, any kind of gumption in my life. You know, it's like, what is all this for? And he said, your problem is you don't have a belief system. You don't believe in anything. And I, I couldn't respond to that. I thought, oh my gosh, I had totally rejected, you know, my, um, extremely conservative Christian background. I hadn't really started studying anything else. And he sent me home with a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Mm. Viktor Frankl. Have you read that book? Yes. And I just reread it last week. How funny is that? (laughs) Wild. Yeah. So I read that book and I thought, oh my God, like I don't have anything to sort of like a life raft, right? During troubling times or just something kind of to look forward to or, or that belief system to hold on to, to carry me through. You know, I'm just this, individual human trying to make it work. So basically my life didn't have a lot of meaning or uh, my existence didn't have a lot of meaning. So that was the beginning of my spiritual search, which is, you know, I put as much effort in my spiritual journey as I do my, you know, professional or business journey. And, um, yeah. So do I have a belief system? I, I do. I'm, it's a pretty loose belief system, but I definitely, um, believe in some higher powers and I'm constantly exploring and searching, what does that mean? And with that belief system, my life has a lot, a lot more meaning. Um, I'm not just uh, doing something, you know, I'm not creating a company to just create a company. What impact can I have in the world? So what I've found out that that does is actually gives me a much bigger kind of vision and broader uh, vision. And having spent so much time around you, I've kind of witnessed the impact and, and the result of this belief system that you have. Um, and it's it's very powerful, and I've learned so much from it. And it just occurred to me that 
I think it's really wise that you haven't overdefined a belief system because it could be very limiting without realizing. And you're so open, and and a lot of it's energy, and that's a big concept. Um, but that just hit me that you haven't tried to nail down a phrase or a canned answer to this. It's it's very open. It's, it's very open. And I, I appreciate you saying that because I do really, I, I'm curious. So whenever I go into any country, any foreign country, or if I meet people from a, let's say a religion or a belief system that's different than mine, I ask a lot of questions. I'm super curious. Like, why do you believe that? And what happens? So I'm fascinating. I'm not judgmental about anyone's belief system, but I do believe in my own experience, I need some sort of belief system. It's what keeps me going. You know, when, when times get hard, I have something bigger than myself to think about and to, um, you know, like I said, to grab onto. What else is there to grab onto? It's such a meaningless uh, existence without it. And in my experience, I was depressed for so many years. And when he laid that book in my hands and when I read it, I immediately dropped into a belief system, even though it wasn't specific into a, a specific, you know, you're, normally when you hear belief, it's about a, a certain religion, right? Mm-hmm. And this was more just a bigger, vast belief system into something that's bigger than me. I'm not, I don't even know what that is, but that is, was literally a huge shift in my life. There was something specific that I took away from the book and rereading it last week. And that was, uh, Victor Frankl says in there, self-actualization is a byproduct of self-transcendence. And I just thought that was a relieving, <laughs> but also it was. There's so much discussion around self actualization and um, you know being your true authentic self, and basically what I took from that and how I decipher that is he's saying when you stop thinking about yourself and you can transcend, not necessarily stop thinking, that's not correct. When you can transcend, rise beyond yourself, then you actually become your true self. And it's like, whoa, (laughs) that's cool. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's so amazing. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Jo Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your why not now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to why not now at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Gruer for editing and producing the show. I'll see you next time. And until then, why not now?